This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm James Carlton. Welcome to God Forbid. It's often the case that the further you live away from the city centre, the more religious you are. But it wasn't always that way. When Christianity began and spread through the Roman Empire, it was the cities in which religion flourished. Those in rural areas tended to believe in the old ways, the pre-Christian ways, and they came to be known as pagans. They were misunderstood then and they have been ever since, not least because of the dizzying array of traditions that pagans can follow. Wicca, witchcraft, druidry, ceremonial magic. There's neo-paganism, paleo-paganism, which I think might be a diet, and pagan reconstructionism. They're all united by a connection to nature and not being like Abrahamic religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam. This helps reveal the fascinating story of human history, but the present and future too, because pagan belief and practice is growing fast, especially among the young, and there aren't too many religions that you can say that about these days. With us on the God Forbid panel, we're lucky to have uh, two very experienced women, Dr. Carolyn Tully, Associate Editor of the International Journal of Pagan Studies, the preeminent journal in the field. It's called The Pomegranate. She's also an author, archaeologist, lecturer, Honorary Fellow in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies. Carolyn, welcome to God Forbid. Hi there. I'm glad to be here. So why, you've always been interested in history. Why are you so fascinated about ancient religion? Hmm. I'm generally basically just very interested in all religion, but ancient religion in particular because being a contemporary pagan, we draw on on history and archaeology because we are trying to look at religion before Christianity, so back when paganism um was, you know, the normal type of religion. And that involves, you know, looking at ancient evidence, whether that's textual evidence or archaeological evidence. And when you look at ancient religion, you just find even more inspirational practices that can, you know, you can adopt today. Of course, there's practices that the ancient pagans did that we don't want to do now as well. Uh, and we don't have to because we don't have to be historically correct. And I just think it's good to know, you know, what did ancient pagans do and how is that similar or different or helpful to contemporary pagan practice? What, what did pagans used to do that they wouldn't want to do now? And what do pagans today wrongfully think they're doing that was done back in ancient times when in fact it wasn't? Oh, well, for example, uh, animal sacrifice, that's really just a meat meal with the gods. And in rural societies now, it's quite normal to slaughter your own meat. And in the ancient world, you know, people slaughtered their own meat or they'd get, you know, a butcher to do it like we would now or an abattoir. And um, But contemporary pagans, a lot of pagans are urban and so it's and a lot of them are not meat eaters as well. So that's just not really something we want to do. It's not it's not normal practice for us in an urban situation to kill our own meat. We often get it from the supermarket in a very disassociated form from, from a live animal. And so that's just something pa- uh, pagans wouldn't do now, but, but it was quite common in the ancient world. So Greek and Roman pagans would um, have a meat meal with the gods. Um, they would basically cook the meat and they would eat it in a, in a religious festival. So some um, contemporary pagans like Norse pagans who live in rural uh, locations might um, slaughter their own meat, but um, generally pagans don't do that. So there's a lot of myth and, and misconception. I, I guess this is a, a harder question than it sounds, but can you define paganism? Well, contemporary paganism today, I would say uh, it's, I use the term pagan as an umbrella term to cover a range of religious expressions ranging from neo-paganism to to druidry, um, different ethnic types of paganism such as um, Celtic or Greek or Roman or Egyptian, magical practitioners such as Wiccans, witches, you mentioned ceremonial magicians, um, chaos magicians, Jew witches. Um, what is that? <laughs> Jew witches. They're Jewish witches. How does that sit with the Torah, the Talmud? I really don't know. Um, <laughs> they're sort of related to goddess Judaism, which is a quite a, like a feminist sort of Judaism that uh, re- recognises 
um, God as female. So Jew witches are, you know, basically Jewish people who practice magic. But yeah, contemporary paganism, it tends to be tends to be polytheistic or at least henotheistic. You know, you might have a favourite god, but you don't deny the existence of other gods. Um, Wicca tends to be duotheistic, so basically with a god and goddess. So it's really quite polytheistic as opposed to monotheistic religion. Also with us is Stacey DeMarco, a member of the Pagan Awareness Network. She's the author of Witch in the Boardroom, because she used to work in the corporate sector and is a witch. (laughs) Enchanted Moon, another of her books, her annual Lunar and Seasonal Diaries, uh, are popular in both their Northern and Southern Hemisphere iterations. Stacey describes herself as a witch, a pagan practitioner and metaphysicist. Stacey, welcome to God Forbid. Thank you for having me. So you went to Catholic school. That obviously didn't work. Uh, You explored many other religions (laughs) and traditions. They didn't stick either. How did you settle on paganism and witchcraft? Well, I think the more you go down a path of being a seeker and looking, you know, I think a lot of people go down this path, especially as teens or as young people, where you're looking for some sort of spiritual practice that sort of benefits you, I suppose, enriches you in some way. And I guess I was the kind of person that I was and still am is is someone who finds great connection with nature. As a woman, I didn't find that that any of the monotheistic religions really uh, empowered me in any way. I realised, you know, doing a lot more research that there was, in fact, uh, an ism, and then in this case paganism, that tended to very much already suit the kind of beliefs that I had and the things that I found value in, in my life. And it was very easy to go down that that pathway. Nonetheless, for a long time, you kept it private, your journey. Uh, in fact, you said of uh, your witchcraft, it was only late that you decided to come out of the broom closet, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Look, I, I think I'm not some, I'm a private person and I, I don't think you know, I need to walk around with a pentagram or I need to sort of tell everyone what I did on the weekend at a gathering or something like that. I think your spiritual and religious practice should shine through that you are a good person or that you are of service or that you are doing great things for the environment or that you are a volunteer or, you know, I I, I don't think I need to parade around um, as a witch. And Carolyn Tully, you also uh, identify as uh, a witch. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, you're a practitioner of philemic witchcraft? Yes. So basically that is just a type of witchcraft that's highly influenced by an early 20th century British occult author called Alistair Crowley, and he channeled a new religion called Thelema, um, which is basically a type of Egyptian revival religion. And uh, he was quite influential on the construction of modern Wicca in the first place. You know, they're all these these new, uh, new old religions are kind of um, all related like that. So, yes, yeah, so Thelemic, which so Thelema means will, and it's about exercising your willpower and trying to achieve things in the real world through exerting your will. And how does this relate your spiritual practice to your academic scholarship and vice versa? Is there a tension there? Well, you know, I'm I'm quite fortunate in that I've had um, quite arty jobs or academic jobs where, well, in my arty jobs, they don't care if I'm a witch. They just think that's kind of artistic and interesting. And and Stacey DeMarco, uh, the hard evidence you know, based approach of the academy, the university, which is part of what Caroline does. You kind of have that at home because your hard evidence science-focused husband is a doctor, a specialist, an anaesthetist. So uh, I guess the conversation is what happens when an anaesthetist and a witch sit down for dinner? A a witch and a doctor, yeah? Um, There's absolutely no tension at all. Um, because I think that's one of the stereotypes. People think that because I have the word witch attached, I must be some um, flighty, ungrounded idiot. And that's, uh, honestly, that's how some people, if you if you put up the word witch in the front of what you are, that's often what it is. Um, but all my work, you know, is plugged into 
so much research. I mean, the, you know, the, the work I've done on the Norse, you know, alone um, with the University of Oslo and the PhD, you know, students there, you know, it, it, you, you can't write well and, uh, you know, on any of these subjects unless you, you do your research. And I, I actually don't see it as anything different. You know, like last night, for example, James, my husband and I were discussing the first law of thermodynamics, would you believe, right? Because I'm writing about this in a new book that touches on death and what happens, you know, what what are our beliefs around what happens after you die? And as a pagan, and most pagans I know, they don't necessarily have a view about any kind of heaven or afterlife. They're, they're thinking of it like the very base elemental laws of the earth, which is, you know, the first law of thermodynamics says that energy can be changed from one form to another, but it cannot be destroyed. So, you know, what does that mean? Well, it means we get recycled. It means that, you know, there probably isn't anything after death and we just change form, you know. So a lot of, I guess, what we talk about is, isn't a lot different. You know, and, you know, my, my husband, you know, is a, is a great surfer, skier. We both do a lot of through hiking. We're mountain climbers. You know, that's the thing that attracted us together, not the fact that I see it as a spiritual practice and he doesn't. Well, which is maybe misunderstood today. It's not a new phenomenon, I can tell you. No. We'll have a look at that up next. <laughs> Witches have an image problem. In fact, to quote a paper written by our panellist Carolyn Tully, the stereotype is of a hag-like, baby-killing worshipper of Satan. And there's Hollywood's modern contribution with the hit shows like Charmed, Sabrina, The Teenage Witch, many others. But are the stereotypes slowly being eroded? And why is Wicca, the spiritual practice of witches, appealing to an increasing number of young people in their teens and twenties? Incidentally, men too, not only women are witches. Dr Emma Quilty is a research fellow at Monash University and she also identifies as a witch. ABC's Miff Warhurst asked her, who are the young witches in Australia? I'm finding that they're a far more complicated group than first anticipated. So when I started my research, I did the big literature review and they were homogenised. This is kind of, they're the young people, they watch Buffy, they buy a book and that's how they get into witchcraft. And what I'm finding is their journeys to witchcraft are far more complex and their identities as witches are a lot more complicated than that as well. Okay, in what way? In witchcraft, there's a lot of emphasis on ancestor worship. So obviously every witch is going to have a different ancestral line. So they're going to have Russian or Scandinavian or Balinese heritage. And what that looks like in their practice is obviously going to differ witch to witch. Yeah, and you look, you've got all your teeth and you're not wearing a hat with a point on it and you no. don't look scary at all, which is, are you the new gen of witches? Are you, do we have to revitalise what we think witchcraft is? I think it's definitely time that we open the conversation up again. I think in the 90s, people like Fiona Horn were really great in bringing it to the fore and making it not so much mainstream, but a bit more understandable. And she and was a musician originally in the band Def FX, wasn't she? Yeah, that were she quite popular in the 90s. And then she sent herself off to America where she's become quite a mainstream mm. author on witchcraft. Yeah, so um, a lot of the literature from the 90s, kind of the mainstream pop culture literature, spoke about white witchcraft, which obviously in an age of intersectionalism and race, we can't, that's not something we would prefer to use. Nowadays, we need to look at witchcraft through a more complicated and refracted lens. So The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina has been really good at doing that. Sabrina has a very eclectic and um, varied group of friends. It's not a very Caucasian high school situation. They're dealing with issues about 
queerness and bullying, gender neutrality, ethnicity. So it's a way to navigate the world. Yeah, that, yeah that's exactly and right. And in what ways do your current spiritual practices answer the big questions, ones about life that traditionally religion would normally answer, like the, you know, the basics, why are we here, how should we live our lives, you know, what's the purpose of life, where do we go when we die? Um, I take a bit of an absurdist approach to this and I think it's come out of my witchy and academic side. I don't think there is any meaning to life or that there is anything after death. Um, I think that that once you get over that realisation and you accept that realisation that death is inevitable, that makes life all the more meaningful and powerful because all that matters is what we're doing right now because this is it. That's Research Fellow and Witch, Dr Emma Quilty, speaking with ABC's Miff Warhurst. We'll put a link to their full conversation on the God Forbid website. Well, Carolyn Tully, we've heard Emma say that she doesn't believe in life after death. You know, this is where it's at. We heard our own Stacey say something similar as well. You know, the meaning in life is what we project onto it. Is that true in your view? Well, I think one of the interesting things about contemporary paganism is because it's earth-focused, rather than imagining there's some sort of afterlife that's better than here that we really want to get to, we can't, you know, can't wait to get away from here to the better place called heaven, um, it behooves us to make the most of living here now. And, I mean, modern paganism, it's pro-earth, it's pro-body, um, it's pro sort of enjoying existence. But many of the things you've said, Carolyn, you know, learning to live well in your existence, taking care of the earth we live on now because it's the, our only home, uh, trying to live a good life. I could have or anyone could have all of those uh, views and precepts to their life but not, not only not be a pagan, not even be a, a theist, you'd be a complete atheist. So what would be the difference? Sure. Well, I mean, some uh, you can look at the pagan gods as just anthropomorphic costumes for natural forces, and um, it's just useful to dress them up as humans because we're used to relate. We, you know, we can relate to them in a human way. But you know, a lot of people, ha a lot of pagans would definitely. You could classify them as um, atheistic, or perhaps animistic is better because I don't really believe the gods look like humans at all. That's just convenient. So, yeah, I guess you could say we could be animists, yep. Stacey DeMarco, what's what's your view? Look, I think I agree with everything that, that Carolyn just said. I think we're probably leaning towards animists there. Oh, I actually think there's a hell of a lot of people who are pagan, you know, by definition. Like if you were going to, you know, look, look around my neighbourhood, which is, you know, full of surfers, full of hikers, full of... People, you know, in their back garden, apiarists, they see nature, they see themselves as being a part of nature rather than apart from nature. You talk about this idea that whenever there's a full moon near on the yeah. beach near your house, yeah. it changes yeah. the attendance at night time. Oh, <laughs> look, when I first started, you know, going down the pagan path, you know, you go, you know, you used to sneak out to your local beach and you do your little ritual and you'd be really kind of worried about being seen, you know, and that quickly wears off. But, you know, in, in the in the day, you know, 30 years ago, you'd go down there and there'd be nobody there. There would be just a few people having a few beers on the beach, maybe. That's a, that's a religion. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's okay, but I'd be tripping over them. So, so I guess it's, there's this huge change in, in connecting with natural cycles, especially the moon. It's a big deal. Um, but, but I guess my point is I, I, I think there's a large amount of people in this country in particular that express that they feel most connected within or just even watching nature. You know, they feel decidedly better after a swim in the sea or they feel awed by a mountain or they're, they're you know, um, excited about, about seeing a flash of lightning or they talk about like, oh, you know, the, the amount of bird watches, they talk about a bird they saw in the morning. And, you know, this, they pay nature great attention and their spirits are deeply moved by that and they're feeling much more connected and content and they, there's, you know, like I'm saying, their spirits are raised. And you know what? That, that is pretty close to being pagan. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you know. So I reckon there's a there's a lot of pagans that don't know they're pagans in this country. 
and I'm just seeing these young ones coming through going, well, I want to I wanna protect Mother Earth. I want to, uh, climate change is a real thing. And so, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to go down this pathway, being an advocate and a protector of Earth is very much a key part of my ritual practice, right? So, so in the past, you know, you did your rituals and all of that. Now being arrested at climate change rallies is part of it. You know, it's, it's, it's actually going out there and fighting for the very thing that you take, you know, your spiritual sucker, uh, you know, in. Does this mean you're going to cast a spell on Adani? <laughs> well, I think that's already happening. Uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of pagans and witches out there that are, you know, they're not, they're not doing anything nasty to Adani, but they're trying to defend. They're trying to, you know, cast, you know, magic to assist with that sort of thing not happening. But also, you know, um, they're actually doing things in the real. They're writing letters. They're, they're you know, being advocates in government. You know, we have a, a very large proportion of pagans in this country that are, that are actually in the helping professions and in environmental groups. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, the, the change. I'm really excited by it. Well, we'll look a bit more at those numbers and where they came from up next. RN, it's God forbid. According to the 2016 census, more than 27,000 Australians identified as pagan or other affiliated nature religions. So what does paganism look like today in Australia so far in place and time from its origins in ancient Europe? And how do Australian practitioners find their way into it? Glenys Livingstone is the Australian creator of a new earth-based goddess religion, Pagayan cosmology it's called, and she spoke to RN's encounter in 2011. And this is what it sounds like to practice that faith. Hail the North, powers of fire, powers of passion, shaping and integration. We are My name is Glenys Livingstone. I was raised, I guess, as a Protestant in country Queensland. I guess I was always very interested in religion. So I actually became a Catholic when I was about 17, whenever all my friends were leaving. <laughs> and I guess what I liked about Catholicism is that people generally weren't just nominal Catholics. They really participated and uh, were serious. So I was serious. So that's what the path I took. And then I went on to study theology. I did that in Berkeley, California at the Jesuit School of Theology. So part of the way through that uh, theology degree, I felt that most religious practice was deeply patriarchal and a betrayal of, of myself as a woman. It's completely cerebral uh, and it's dogmatic. Hail the East, powers of water, powers of sensitivity, emotion and response. We are wet with you, we taste you, we know you. So much of patriarchal religions is dualistic. The deity, the sacred, is out there somewhere and it's definitely not in you. <laughs> Whereas the story that we tell here is that the sacred is in the earth and we come out of the earth. So it's an ecological story. So it's in the midst of that theology study that I made a transition out of the Christian paradigm. And then I learned from Starhawk about the earth-based tradition of old Europe. I guess my practice began in the late 80s. I celebrated the winter solstice for the first time uh, here in Australia. I realised that it was a very powerful thing to be doing, to align oneself with the creativity. Glenys Livingston, creator of the earth-based goddess religion Pagayan Cosmology. 
speaking to Masako Fukui on the ABC's Encounter program in 2011. We'll put a link to the full conversation on the God Forbid website. Well, Stacey DeMarco, there'll be some ears that hear those uh, prayer sessions, for want of a better word, that'll just, you know, the hairs on the back of the head will sort of stick up and they'll go, that, that's not real, that's not how I understand religion. Religion's supposed to have a, you know, an ancient tradition. It's not supposed to be brand new. And of course, the irony is she was trying to draw on things that very much were ancient, even more ancient than the religions we're familiar with today mainstream. It's, it's quite a complex picture, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and like, you know, all she, from what I can gather, I mean, it was only a very quick, you know, soundbite there, but she is pulling in the elements, you know, the four elements. She's pulling in directions and those kinds of things, you know, have, have been drawn upon in lots of different cultures right across the whole of the world, um, you know, for a very long time. You know, you have the, the Romans talking about, you know, directions. You certainly have the Norse, you know, who are great navigators talking about winds and, you know, having names for different winds. And this is nothing new, that what she is doing is putting it together in her own special way. And really that's something that, you know, most pagans do. The, most pagans, and, and this is, I mean, I'm going to just talk about witchcraft here. Mm. Most witches are eclectic solitaries. They're not part of a coven. They're not part of a particular tradition. They pull, if you like, cherry pick in, in some ways, the bits that they like from reconstructionists, from original sources. I'm a big one for original sources, you know, when I can find them. Um, you know, so so this isn't, it's being creative as she's, she mentions the word creation and creative a lot. And, and that's what she's doing. She's, she's pulling the bits that speak to her, that are important to her, and she is creating her own thing. And, and I guess if, you know, if you're Catholic or Jewish or something like that, that might be scary to you, but guess what? You know, if you're Catholic, it's only 2,000 years ago that someone would have done that, right? Like Christianity is a baby religion, like a babe in arms compared to, you know, some, some of the Hellenismos or the, or the Greek religion, for example, the original stuff, you know? So, uh, look, I, I don't think there's anything scary about what she's doing. And Dr. Carolyn Tully, do you agree or is there potentially a spiritual or intellectual risk in creating new religious movements and then trying to retrofit them onto the best we can work out, the best we can perceive of what the old ones were like, the pre-Christian traditions from which much less survives? There's no pagan Bible, there's no pagan Pope, there's no pagan institutional church. Yes, but, um, I mean, there were lots of different pagan religions, so there's not going to just be one pope. Or, um, and, you know, polytheism um, was about multiplicity. Polytheism never tried to codify um, belief. Polytheism was also about uh, action rather than belief. It wasn't concerned with what you believed but what you did. Uh, so in regards to ancient historical religions and, and constructing modern paganism, history is... Um, a separate discipline to religion, and I think what modern pagans are doing today is they're looking at um, ancient religion, but they're also looking at contemporary uh, landscape and circumstances and trying to come up with a poetic um, way to relate to the natural world, some of which might be using ancient material. So I, I think you can have a religious experience whether something is historically correct or even occurred at all historically because the religious ecstatic experience or the mystical experience or the experience of relationship with um, the universe is not dependent on history, but I think sometimes people might make claims about history that are incorrect because they're not historians and they don't really know. Um, but I think create, I mean, what, create, creativity is one of the characteristics of contemporary paganism, really. And contemporary pagans can do what they want with creativity because there's, um, you know, no overarching authority that tells you, oh, you can't do that. Maybe different traditions have senior members and they may have um, authority over some other of the members um, within the tradi pagan tradition. But 
they don't have authority over other pagans. So people can do a lot of um, independent creative activity um, and if it's not hurting anyone, um, then they should be allowed to do that. That's a positive description and a, and a colourful one you paint of the sort of mosaic and diversity of modern paganism. But if one wanted to be pejorative and, uh, you know, you could say, look, this is just, you're making it up as you go along because there's just not that much we know about pre-Christian religion. Well, I mean, there is a lot we know about pre-Christian yeah. religion. Uh, as Stacey said, I mean, someone did make up... Um, the different varieties of uh, Christianity. Um, someone made up Judaism. I mean, I mean, leaders claim that they um, had special um, conversations with deities in order oh. to have the authority to make up these religions, but they're all made up. And if I can just interrupt here, and a lot of the Christian traditions are actually appropriated from pagan traditions. Yes, right? that's true. Like, you can call Christianity um, paganism's greatest hits. For example, the dying and rising God, the the morning yeah. goddess, and things like that. You know, you can compare um, Egyptian Isis and her son Horus with the Virgin Mary and Christ. That's what James Fraser was trying to do in his book, The Golden Bough. He was trying to show how Christianity was just one more of the dying and rising God religions from the Near East. Yeah, and and you know, and it's it's really funny when you. When you point this out to Christians, there is often a real resistance to this. Well, hang on, hang on. What do you mean? And you know, you explain, say, the the uh, Celtic Wheel of the Year, which breaks the, the year down into light and dark. Um, you know, equinoxes, solstices, growing times, fallow times. You know, and you link those with, you know, Christmas, Yule. You, you know, Easter, Yoster, you know, all those sorts of things. And you start to show them that these dates, these times of the year were, were you know, appropriated from, you know, the pagan pathways. You know, oh, oh, there's, there's just absolute consternation. It's, you know, there's a huge resistance to that. It's, yes, it's, and a lot of um, Christian uh, buildings are built straight over pagan sites. Like, um, absolutely. I mean, under the Vatican, there's, you know, shrines to Roman gods. Um, mm -hmm. it, I believe it was a policy to actually build Christian structures on pagan sites because the theory was, well, the people are used to coming to these sites, so we'll just put our church here and they'll just keep coming because they're used yes. to coming to this location. Yeah, I mean, you go to somewhere like even Notre Dame, you know, before it was you know, burnt, unfortunately, and you go right down to the cellars. It's all goddess, you know. This is a site that was a, a pilgrimage site for pagans before there was a church. So this is famous places, you know, like it's it's super interesting. And Stacey, you go on pilgrimages yourself. Tell me about some of the ancient pagan ruins you've seen in the Greek world and, and your experience there. So because I studied with priestesses from Greece um, because my main focus with a deity is, is Artemis. Um, so the ancient site of Delphi, um, which anyone can visit, it's amazing. You can go there and see the museum, you can see the ruins. And, of course, Delphi was the, the main, let's call it divination, oracle site for the ancient world. I mean, you had, you know, everyone from... Alexander the Great, for example, Caesar, everyone went there to find out, you know, are they going to win this war or what's going to happen to me? And that place has a lot of um, priestesses and people that do follow the old Greek religion, um, the Hellenismus, um, they, they teach there. On our end, it is, God forbid, Stacey DeMarco with us, a member of the Pagan Awareness Network, author of many, many books. Also, Dr. Carolyn Tully, Associate Editor of The Pomegranate. That's the International Journal of Pagan Studies, the leading publication in the field. She's also one of the organisers of the Australian Wiccan Conference, a lecturer at the University of Melbourne. Much more ahead on God forbid.
One of the most fascinating forms of paganism is practised in a place that's one of the most distant from Australia, Iceland. Of a small base, its numbers rise year after year after year, and it's now the second largest religion after Christianity in Iceland. This religion is called Ausatru, the new religion that tries to revive the pre-Christian pagan worship of Norse gods like Thor and Odin. Johanna Haradotir is one of the priestesses of this movement and she lives near a fjord just outside the capital of Reykjavik and RN's Meredith Lake asked her about the idea that trees are sacred. Also true is really all about nature. And if you look at a tree, in the winter it's, it's empty. There's nothing on the tree. It looks dead. But then suddenly little brooms come, uh, little green uh, spots, and they turn into leaves, and, and they become dark green, and, and they bloom. And then, of course, the winter comes again, and they will turn brown, and they will fall off. But, of course, next spring they'll be back. And it's the same with the sun. I mean, it rises in the east and uh, it's, a, it's a beginning of a new day. And, and then it goes on and it climbs up the sky and, and in the south it's highest and then it goes down. And you are enjoying everything that the sun and the life and the summer has given you. That's what it's all about. For me, at least, you see. There's a story in the Adas in the very beginning, I think, about Odin creating people also out of wood, out of trees, really. Is that what you mean when you say we are close to nature? That's just one small part of it. We are, of course, nature. I mean, you and me are a part of it. We are born from nature and we will go back there and while we are here, in between, everything we have and everything we will ever own comes from nature. That's something that uh, people should start to realize, that this world, our nature, is the one that gives us everything we have. We need to nourish it, because otherwise it will not give us anything. And it's about time that we start thinking about this. Johanna, let's talk about how you nourish the earth as someone who practices Austatru. In my own life now, the most important thing for the earth is to take care not to spoil everything that we've already done. We are really practically um, killing the <laughs> environment with our doings. And that's something that we must change. We are not thinking about what we are doing. And that's Johan Haradotir, practitioner and priestess of the Ausatru Icelandic pagan religion, speaking with Meredith Lake. We'll put a link up to their full conversation on the God Forbid website. Well, Carolyn Tully, that sounds like a, a fascinating movement. Trees are sacred, yet I understand they very much adore timber products. They want trees to be planted and harvested. Well, you know, what's interesting is that when the Vikings um, first got to Iceland, they actually chopped down all the trees until there were absolutely none. And um, and so they have to plant um, trees there. But it's interesting that she talks about trees because um, my PhD research was on tree worship in Minoan Crete. And so I'm very, very interested in sacred trees and that sort of thing entitled The Cultic Life of Trees, but it's from a long, long way away in the Mediterranean basin. You're looking at Palestine, Israel, Lebanon, uh, uh, Crete, the Cycladic Islands and so forth. How do these things compare and contrast being at such distant parts of the earth? Well, I mean, trees are trees, but of course it does depend on um, different regions as to, you know, what kinds of trees and what people might have been doing with those trees. Um, in Crete, it seems that the ancient Minoans, who are the Bronze Age Cretans, uh, believed um, nature was animate and they would communicate with uh, nature often through what in later Greek religion are called nymphs. So nymphs are... A sort of anthropomorphic 
spirits of natural places like trees and rivers and mountains and things like that. And there's a lot of Minoan evidence that, um, yeah, so basically of little nymphs being intermediaries between humans and natural um, objects like, such as trees. And interestingly, in regards to wood, in some cultures, for example, Japan, uh, wood, you know, a chopped down tree is not necessarily considered dead, but it's considered to get a, a second life when it's turned into a um, something wooden like furniture or, or things like that, even though technically it is dead. But, but in regards to animism, just because you might use um, say a stone or a tree in building it, it doesn't mean that that's now dead. So sometimes a building can be animate because of the materials that it was made out of. So what does this mean for a modern urban pagan in the centre of one of our large capital cities? Well, it can mean that we should and, and do go to parks quite a lot or, you know, might have a lot of plants or trees and things in our gardens, depending how big they are. And it can mean that we get very annoyed when our neighbours chop down trees seemingly for no good reason at all. Time to get the spell out. Well, yeah. that I mean, that's one of the good things about spells is, you know, um, <laughs> you know, it's a way to um, affect things without people necessarily knowing that you did. <laughs> So paganism in, and the environment in the face of climate change, this must be an important moment. Yeah. I, you know, I've been active in environmental causes for a very long time and uh, I think part of what drives me is the sacredness of my practice. You know, we fought for a couple of trees that were in a sort of no man's land between my land and the next uh, property, huge fir trees. Um, why? Because there are two peregrine falcons that nest in there, right? And, of course, no one else noticed. The, we, the reason we were able to save them was that, you know, silly pagan person, me, sat out there and, and made sure that we photographed them over a season to show that they're actually you know, these rare birds. Yes, but Stacey, the success of your endeavour, which I congratulate you for, was based on your scientific observation of the presence of a rare bird. It's not as if the you yes, know, local council said, well, Stacey, Stacey's got a good point about trees being gods. We better, we better do, you know, we better keep this one up. No, but, but it's, not, it's not about that this is a god. This is a sacred and necessary part of the ecosystem. And it's like the priestess was saying, the Icelandic priestess, that we, we actually have to stop looking away from nature, thinking we are not a part of nature. We are a part of nature. We are nature. It's this whole idea of being more connected, right? Like when I was a teenager, I, I can tell you, I wouldn't have seen those birds. You know, people come to my house, they don't see the birds because they're not looking in the garden, they're not looking at the sky, they're not looking at the rocks, they're not looking at, you know, they, they might look at the lovely flowers in my garden, right, but they're not looking at, at it as an ecosystem. I look at my garden, nature, the earth, everything as a, a part of myself. Even the weeds. Yes, there is no such thing as weeds. They're, they're plants out of place. That's all they are. There's no such thing as weeds, right? So this is, this, you know, I've got a weed, in, you know, something is called a weed in my garden at the moment. It's called fleabane. Everyone thinks it's a weed. I collect it from other people's gardens because I use it in my magic. It's not a weed. It's just a plant out of place, right? So it's, you know, I, I think it's an attitude. Um, you know, if you look at, you know, my, my friends that are um, Native peoples, either Native American or Australian Aboriginal, the ability for them to be able to connect with the small parts of the land, come and look at this dung beetle or come and see this change of the current, you know, in the, in the beach or come and, come and have a look, you know, this, this plant is now going to uh, flower at this time of the year because, you know, of the light or whatever. They're very connected with the cycles and, and the way things change and develop. The average person, the average urban person has no idea at all and that needs to change if we're going to change the way we treat the earth. On RN, it is God forbid, I'm James Carlton and now it's time for Wits End the Quiz. 
Wits End. I guess it's Wits End, the God forbid quiz. Uh, a witch edition. Which edition? Uh, an edition about witches. As always, we begin with the buzzes. Dr. Carolyn Tully, you're an academic who tries to dispel all the myths and stereotypes about witches and the belief that witches do this one is a big one. Test your buzzer. Worshipping the devil! Thank you. <laughs> Stacey DeMarco, we turn to you now. Test your buzzer. I'll get you, my pretty. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes, I do, from The Wizard of Oz. The original. Yeah. Now, first question. Um, in Wicca, and this is an easy one, what's a group of witches called? I'll get you, my pretty. A coven. Yeah. What's the origin of that word? Are there big covens and small covens all around the world? I can tell you what the origin is. The origin is the origin of the word coven comes from the witch trial of Isabel Gowdy in Scotland in about, yeah. I think it was 16, six, in the 1660s, and she's the first one to mention coven and the first one to mention a coven of, oh, actually I think Margaret Murray mentioned a coven of 13, but now yeah. coven is, is really the, you know, the main term that you would use for a group of witches. And Carolyn, speaking of witch trials, you make the point that so many of these poor women who were killed, burnt at the stake, drowned in the lake, weren't witches anyway. Yes. Um, and some say, you know, the real witches would have been sleeping with the inquisitors. Uh, but really, no, um, certainly, you know, if we, if we think of how many people were tried for in, for witch as witches, so about between 40 and 60,000, um, that's not all executed but tried, they're not all going to be witches. Some of some people may have been uh, practitioners of, of certain types of magic. Um, historians agree that, that none of them were that stereotype of the satanic uh, mm. anti-society that wanted to overthrow Christianity. So none of them were stereotypical so-called satanic witches. And a lot of them would have just been women who society... Um, turned on and sometimes they were poor women who had had asked for something at someone's house and then the person had said no I'm not giving you any butter and the the woman had gone away grumbling and then next thing you know someone in the house has fallen ill and they go ha she cursed us um and they go yeah. well what's your proof and they go well you know she walked away mumbling and now my mother's sick and so that's the proof so you know look it was very it was a terrible 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 time and mm. um so, but and a lot of those people would not have been witches, that's for sure. And, and also, if you think of just the patriarchal part of that, right, Caroline, it's, it's this, mm -hmm. you know, the, a lot of the women that had land taken from them if they were convicted, the land went to the church. You know, they might have been widows or, you know, women that had some standing in the community that resisted the the sort of, you know, this new patriarchal religion coming across. So it was very convenient for them to be tried as witches and their lands taken. So, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of power um, struggle happening at that time too. Yes, and indeed most of them were were women. The majority of people uh, yeah. tried as, as witches were women. Yeah. Well, next question. We've talked about the wheel of the year, which is the cycle of seasons and celebrations observed by Pagans, can you name the eight major solar events on the wheel? I can do one. Uh, Yule, as in Yule Tide, occurs just before Christmas. What are the rest? Worshipping the devil. Imolk. Yes. Yostre, spring equinox. Yeah, Marbon. Yeah. Litha. It depends what you. Yeah, Lammas. Um, depends what you call the summer solstice. Some people call it Litha. Samhain. So sometimes Lammas is called Lunasa. Basically, the Wheel of the Year has different names sometimes for diff different yeah. groups, might give it different names. Yeah. Well, you, you made a fist of it. Next question. Here's a quote from a movie <laughs> in which a teenage witch casts a spell on whomever irritates her. She says to one of her victims, quote, relax, it's only magic, now who's pathetic? Is that movie from A, The Craft, B, Hocus Pocus, C, Practical Magic, or D, Sleepy Hollow? Worshipping the devil! The craft. Uh, Carolyn, well done. The 1996 film about a newcomer to a Catholic prep school who falls in with a trio of outcast teenage girls who practice witchcraft and cast spells on their student enemies. And, you know, 
parents have always worried about kids falling in with the wrong group at school for a very long time. Well, you see what happens with Catholic schools? Yeah, well, that's yeah. it. It's not, it's yeah, we all turn into witches in the end. It's their fault, yeah. <laughs> Next question. Uh, what is heathenry, also known as heathenism? Worshipping the devil! It's Norse paganism. Norse, yeah, it's Norse. Yeah, uh, but is it a new religious movement or an old ancient faith tradition? Well, it's, re- it's reconstructionist. It you both. Yeah. yeah. But also in Iceland, because they were Christianised quite late, it doesn't have to be as reconstructed as some of the other, you know, early Christianised yeah. places. So, you know, you showed that Icelandic uh, example before, um, you know, Asatru is... Um, legal in Iceland. Yeah. Um, mm, anyway. <laughs> if you go to, I spent a lot of time in Norway and I've visited Iceland as well. It's very open there. Um, there's a great new temple there. The people that I know that I've been to gatherings with, um, you know, things like Seether, um, you know, uh, divination and things like that. People are still going around the country areas, you know, doing divination for um, people just as part of the, the religion, it's been going on a long time. So, yes, part of it, I believe, is reconstructed, obviously, because there's been, you know, a few hundred years of, of it being underground and it's sort of illegal and like Carolyn says, but there is a, um, you know, a great love of the old gods in those countries for sure. Okay, final question. Which famous fictional witch is this quote referring to? You really are the brightest witch of your age. Worshipping the devil! Oh, is it Hermione? Well done, Hermione Granger in the witch series of books. Uh, Harry Potter. Harry Potter, yeah. Correct. Harry Potter is correct. And with that we have, I'll call it a draw in the God Forbid quiz, but I also call it a success on the God Forbid program because of the expertise of Carolyn and Stacey. Um, Stacey DeMarco, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I've had such a great time. Thank you. Stacey's a member of the Pagan Awareness Network. She's the author of more than a dozen books, uh, one of them Witch in the Boardroom, the other The Enchanted Moon. Dr Carolyn Tully, thank you as well. You're welcome. I love talking about paganism, so it's a pleasure for me to do that. I hope to do it again. Carolyn's the associate editor just appointed of The Pomegranate, a distinguished journal, the International Journal of Pagan Studies. She's also one of the organisers of the Australian Wiccan Conference, a lecturer, honorary fellow at the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne. So with that, we have reached the end of God Forbid. You can subscribe on the ABC Listen app. You can email me at godforbid at abc.net.au. I'm James Carlton. Until Until next week, remember to be good. This has been God Forbid. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.